A warning, this podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence against children. A listener production. This is Real Crime, Australian Detectives, and I'm Adam Shand. On the evening of October 6, 1997, two schoolgirls from Bega, New South Wales, disappeared after leaving a campsite at the beach. 14-year-old Lauren Barry and 16-year-old Nicole Collins were headed to the Collins family home less than three kilometres away. Their parents had no fears for their girls in this quiet community. However, their path tragically crossed with two worthless beings who abducted the girls and then raped and murdered them, leaving their bodies hundreds of kilometres from home. Bega detective Mark Winterflood led the task force that eventually found Lauren and Nicole and brought their depraved killers to justice. In this episode, Mark takes us inside the investigation. We get an understanding of how this senseless tragedy left its mark on everyone in this small town, including the investigator himself. My name is Mark Winterflat. I'm a retired detective sergeant. I um, actually approached the police in Perth when we were living there and I did a short period with their cadets, at which time my parents moved to Sydney, so I decided to stay with them. I was only sort of 17, 18 at the time, and then came to Sydney and signed up over here. So I uh, did some time in Sydney, did some time in the rescue squad, did a bit of high patrol, and then went into plain clothes about... 1987, somewhere there. Yeah, right. Did you have any family in the force at all? No, or? not at all, no. It was more a case of uh, I didn't really want to go to university. The starting wage was quite respectable and it's sort of I never left, yeah. Mm. I didn't really try playing clothes until the, the late 80s. It was more of a trial thing and I actually enjoyed it and found that I had people's skills that suited it and I stayed from there basically, yeah. And where were you stationed? That was at Nara. So, at Nara, yeah, yeah, in your hometown. So, yeah, yeah. So I did uh, some general duty work there and then I went into plain clothes and stayed in plain clothes, got designated and worked there for a number of years uh, and then won the promotion to Bega, which was a, a detective sergeant's role. So, What year was that? Uh, I started here in 95, yeah. Right. So what was Bega like back then? Uh, much like it is now, there was, I don't know, 4,000 people in this town and up to about 10,000 within the valley. But it's always been a traditional sort of rural centre for agriculture, schools, you know, hospital and so on. So it's that sort of conservative country town. That hasn't really changed. And people do uh, know each other here and yeah. it's a fairly safe community. Yeah. But, of course, it's on... A thoroughfare, one of the busiest thoroughfares in Australia, and all kinds of flotsam and jetsam pass through here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, what was the kind of work generally that you were doing as a detective sergeant here? Right. So, I had three other detectives with me, um, and we worked from Naruma down to the Victorian border. So, uh, any sort of crime that would involve going before a judge and jury, we expected to investigate any suspicious death, any suicides. So it was all serious crime and although you don't think there's a lot of it, we were never not busy. Uh, we were always stretched. 
and your forensic people come from a long way away. So we would have to authorise them to come. And so things were quite slow here in terms of getting resources to actually come here and do the hands-on things that you need for, you know, modern-day sort of expectance of a, of a court. Mark had been working in Bega for two years when Nicole and Lauren went missing. So the 3rd of October 1997, yeah. what were you doing that day? So I was up in Goulburn doing an in-service training uh, senior investigators course, at which time one of my colleagues rang and said, oh, I've, I've got these two missing girls. I don't think there's too much in it and we won't trouble you, uh, but just letting you know. And then he would ring me regularly and say, we've, we've had two models at the intersection and we've done this and we've done that. And the management had called down, after about a week, they called down a team of detectives and set up what we called a task force. And they had their own room at, at Bega Station. So th- they basically investigated any leads that were available. And there were five or six you know, after you sort of checked the family and looked at the pedophile register and things like that. After how long? I think it was about five or six weeks all up they'd been going. You know, I appreciate that they're all on various allowances to be living away from home and that sort of thing. So it's costing management a lot of money to run, which is not a problem if it's a murder, but when it... You know, the boss said, listen, I think you're chasing ghosts at the moment, so until there's something substantial, we're all going to stand down. But what happens in that situation where you are chasing ghosts, there's not a lot of evidence, there's not a lot of clues. Yeah. Um, you can suspect they've been murdered. Yeah. But they could as easily, in other cases, just gone missing. Yeah, yeah. They could have gone over, well, one of the stories was they'd gone to top, run away to Thailand, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, checks on airports and all these other things, you can sort of neutralise that quite quickly. And there was also controversy in the media about these girls hitchhiking. Yes. And that rankled with this community, including the, the family. Yeah, particularly Nicole's father. It, was, it came up as an incident on the John Laws show and uh, Nicole's father actually rang John Laws directly and said, listen, they were not hitchhiking, you know. Um, they are not that sort of girl. There was some suggestion that they, you know, a bit too easy to get into a car, but he said, no, not at all. And clearly from, as I learnt more about them, that was the case. They were very much home girls that, you know, didn't participate in that sort of thing. So. Yeah, what did you learn about them and the families? Um, Lauren had a brother who was just a year or two older. Mum and Dad were in the midst of separating, so there was some angst there in terms of, you know, sadness and awkwardness. And Nicole's family uh, was a, a Brady Bunch-type family, a mixture of uh, two parents that had come together. So the father was actually the stepfather of Nicole, um, but still a very close family, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Graham was a local vet and Garrett Barry was a, a local town planner. So, you know, these are very well educated, yeah, good people. Yeah. So you could quickly eliminate any one of the families being involved. Yes. Which of course takes it into the wild blue yonder. Yes. In the early days of the investigation, all Winterflood had was the scene of the last reported sighting of Lauren and Nicole. So about a kilometre from here in the bush, there are tracks that go through to an area called White Rock and the families would camp there most years, I believe. So they were at this campsite. Now, the track comes out a few hundred metres up here, but my belief is that the girls walked through the bush here yep. and came out on the road. Because it's so narrow on that far side, they've come to where we are and were walking here. This was about 9pm. They were either headed to a party at a friend's house or to the Collins family home, which was three kilometres away on the edge of Bega. Now, at the stage that two girls were missing persons in the early days of the investigation, 
there was a uh, surfing top or a jumper found beside the road over there. It was handled by a few people, was given to the inspector, he took it to the families, and the mother identified it as belonging to Lauren Barry. So it stayed at her place in a bedroom for a few days, and then when it became more serious, we took it back. And in hindsight, what we now realise is somehow other Lauren got that out of the window as some sort of a signal that we've gone this way. At this stage, police reached out for public assistance. Because when they went missing, they set up a couple of models down at that last intersection. So as people drove by, did you notice these girls, etc. So out of that, you get one witness comes forward that was a, a keen surfer. He'd come through at 6am and, and as he passed this spot, he sees the pink television right here beside the road. And it's an old valve style, a big boxy thing, not a, you know, modern style. He just noticed it, thought it was odd, go surfing in the water a couple hours. He's coming home it's gone. It's in his statement, but no one really thinks anything of it. Another witness from the uh, demo that we done at the corner stated that she was with her mother in a car. She'd come from Rimbula and they turned right and they saw the two girls and two guys at the white sedan here. And she recognised one of the male persons as being a part Aboriginal youth that she knew from Bega. Okay, so we go and interview him and he makes up this bizarre fabricated story of being with friends at Bermagui and coming down the coast road but not stopping here and not knowing anything about the girls. And apart from this girl's say-so, that she, he was one of the fellows at the car, we had nothing on him, so he was released. The next day, he hangs himself in a tree at his mother's place. Fortunately, he gets cut down and saved by the ambulance on the scene. But instantly, the whole team is thinking, well, <laughs> you know, you don't hang yourself over nothing. Anyway, as it turned out, he and two or three other young fellows had been stealing cars that day. So he was lying about where he had been, but he couldn't say that because he would get all his friends in trouble. Six weeks into the investigation, the killers, Lindsay Hoani Beckett and Leslie Alfred Camilleri, were not even on the radar. That changed after a call from police in Yass, New South Wales. Everything was exhausted. There was nothing left. Uh, and then we had this phone call from the police at Yass uh, suggesting Beckett and Camilleri uh, that we should look at them. So their names went on the whiteboard as the last line of inquiry and management said, well, we've got to close the task force down because of the expense. So what happened next? We speak to the police at Yass. We discover that they have an informant uh, who knows Beckett and Camilleri quite closely, uh, uses drugs with them, owes them money and that... The only evidence we had at that stage was that the morning after this had been on the morning news that these girls had disappeared, is one of them said to the other, I bet the police try and pin this on us. And he thought, that's an odd thing to say. And he said, the other thing I know is they went to Bega that weekend. That's all he knew. But with their background, it looked very suspicious. Sydney-born Camilleri had been a deprived, unloved child who inflicted his pain on innocent people around him. At the time of the murders, he was 28 and had 146 convictions for dishonesty, theft and willful damage. He was on bail for the sexual assault of his de facto wife's daughter. His trial had been aborted and he was on weekend detention awaiting a new trial. New Zealand-born Lindsay Beckett had a low IQ. He was a born follower. Just 23 in 1997... Beckett had fallen under the malign influence of the older man Camilleri. 
The pair had been stealing cars in the rural community of Yass, three and a half hours' drive northwest of Bega. A month before the Bega offences, Camilleri and Beckett had first stepped up to rape and attempted murder. So then when we did some research on them, we discovered this incident uh, up at Barrel, where this girl had been picked up in Canberra, had been sexually abused, had been driven along dirt tracks, asked them that she had to go to the toilet, so she gets out of the car in the dark, runs away, manages to find a wombat burrow and, and dives in, and Beckett and Camilleri are going around trying to find her armed with knives and can't, so they leave. So she goes to a local farmhouse, dressed only in, you know, a skimpy top and no underwear, and the police come and uh, take her to a hospital. She makes a brief statement, which one of the police record, uh, but when she's followed up by detectives, she declines to proceed. And the tragedy of that situation was that the detectives ne- never really pursued it. Even when we started our investigation, they hadn't gone to nail her down and say, you know, what about this? So, in effect, it's a hard reality that if they had followed up, this wouldn't have happened. Probably wouldn't have happened. And also, she became an excellent witness in that her uh, experience was very much a live run of what happened to the two girls and, and that's how it played out in court. The other sort of bizarre background circumstances was that Camilleri uh, had been failing to turn up on his weekend detention and if he'd been doing those, this wouldn't have happened. He was also on bail for um, a sexual abuse of his stepdaughter and if that had been pursued a bit harder, he probably wouldn't have got bail in the circumstances. So those two systems failed. So he was on the loose. None of this would have happened if, you know, people had sort of um, followed things to the limit. So, um, yeah, with all that background, we started investigating them. Camilleri got arrested for his failure to go to the weekend detention and we knew that he was in Goulburn in jail. Uh, And then we got information that Beckett... Uh, had been involved in a pursuit with the police in Canberra and that the car that he was in had bloodstained clothing in the boot. We thought, A, that's really interesting because it might be the girl's clothing, but B, that um, he was clearly separated from Camilleri and there could be no contact. So this could be a moment when uh, that would be an advantage to us as investigators. So at that point, we only had the information about the Pink TV, we hadn't pursued it any further. So uh, two of us travelled up to Canberra and asked to uh, speak to Beckett. That was arranged and he was incredibly relaxed in the interview. I'd never, to the point of being overly cocky, his feet were on the table at one point. He was that sort of leaned back, you know. Well, well, I saw the video and he's actually got his feet on a chair and he's sort of swinging the chair back and forth. Yeah, yeah. What sort of, I mean... Guilty men are often quite cocky. I didn't pick up any nervousness or awkwardness to start with. So, you know, clearly he's familiar with talking to police. He's been well drilled by Camilleri, I would assume, at some point. Yeah, on top of that, Camilleri's de facto was living uh, in Bega. So we did a search warrant on her house and we took the white car. We took the Ford Telstar. So, and we interviewed Helen. She indicated that the pink television or a television was in the car with a case of beer when they left and that they had a bit of an argument. They'd showered and left and uh, Beckett later tells us they'd gone under the bridge to have a beer and beer and, and shoot up. 
So we knew more that the television had been in that car, but we couldn't take it any further. So when I put that to Beckett in that first interview, there was clearly a change in his demeanour. You could feel that, oh, that's upsetting him. So He stopped all of a sudden. He did, yeah. And we didn't want to sort of give too much away. So we talked to each other afterwards to say, yeah, I think, I think that we're onto something here. So we basically thanked him for his time and he went back into custody with the ACT police. Winterflood knew the pink television would be vital to solving this case and set about finding it. So at that point, we decided to go and try and meet the informant that had given the information to the YAS police. So we travelled on to YAS, couldn't find him. We found his mother. She's the one that told us he'd bought it from the second-hand dealers some quite a few months back. So that led us to the dealership and he went back through all his records and found the exact one, serial number, the whole thing. So we took a photograph of that. But it was him that told us it was a wood-grained old uh, valve-style boxy thing. So we left there thinking, yeah, this is interesting, but we need to find it. And then we're travelling back between Yass and Canberra and he rings my mobile and says, oh, I've made this uh, error. He said, I remember clearly now it was hand-painted in this dull pink colour. And we knew straight away that we're on the money. Because that put your suspects on the scene. It put them on Evans Hill at the time when two girls were seen at the car. So the witness that had seen the four people at the car didn't know the girls and just identified that one young man as being possibly this part Aboriginal fellow. So, um, yes, that put them on the hill. We're now dealing with at least the kidnapping. We don't know what else has happened. So then we came back to Bega and got onto the managers and said, listen, can we have some staff back? And I asked two of those to go straight to Goulburn and put the pink television to Camilleri. So Camilleri refused to answer questions and was pretty blunt and rude to them. And they came down to Bega to meet up with us. So we'd only just met the next morning and we get a phone call from uh, Goulburn Jail from a uh, psychologist counsellor and she gives us the information that after that conversation with Camilleri that he'd been in a very traumatised state, pacing around, banging his head against the wall, saying they know about the fucking television. So we knew it was gold. We knew that this was what we needed to get. So that's when we did media releases in terms of a pink television. From that, a council employee comes forward. And he said he put it in the back of the ute, drove into Bega, and near Bega tennis courts there was like a dumpster bin, and he put it next to that to be taken away. So uh, the dumpster bin had gone, the TV had gone. You know, six or eight weeks had gone by in this sort of time frame. Then we put out another media release asking for anyone that has knowledge of that TV being near the dumpster to, to let us know. So then we get this very reluctant young fellow who I still see from week to week in the town on his motorbike who comes in and says, listen, I have a confession to make. I actually found that TV and took it home and I got it working again and I've painted it black and I've sold it. So we traced the ad in the local newspaper. So then we had to go back to the media and say, listen, one more request. Um, We're now looking for a black TV which was sold from this advertisement in the Beacon News. And so by that stage, the media are sort of queuing up and getting very interested in what's going on. They've obviously got a rough idea of what's going on. But as a result of that publicity, uh, a pub owner rang us and said, listen, I bought that TV for one of our rooms. Um, It's still here if you want to come and get it. So we raced out there, picked it up, 
serial number was right, everything was right. So at that point we had to make a decision, do we act straight away or should we consider other strategies? What else would you be considering at that point? I think I'd be saying back to Beckett and Camilleri. The superintendent was of the view that we should just go back and put something to them and walk away and use some sort of uh, listening device type of thing between the two of them. Um, My thoughts there were that Camilleri would then control Beckett and we may lose an opportunity, which, you know, we had at the moment because we knew they'd been apart for probably seven or eight days at this point. Uh, I guess by now you know quite a lot about their relationship. Yes. What did you learn about the relationship between Camilleri and Beckett? That people regarded Beckett as Camilleri's lapdog, uh, that he was very much controlled by Camilleri, but they were just a crime wave in Yass, uh, often in pursuits and, you know, regularly in trouble. Uh, but what did Camilleri have? Was he a charismatic character or what was he? No, big, strong looking fellow, um, violent. What uh, do you think that Camilleri offered to Beckett? That's a good question. Um, I'm sure that Beckett looked up to him, probably not quite in a hero status, but in a very, he's a very competent, accomplished criminal, gets what he wants, does what he wants. I like that. That's sort of what I saw. And Beckett's a bit pathetic, isn't he? He is a bit pathetic. At I that mean, what, was, what did you learn about his background? Not a great deal other than that he was a heavy speed user and had been with uh, with Camilleri for a while and the informant. They were all pretty close. Um, they didn't work. Uh, they lived very grubby lives in terms of the personal hygiene. Um, but you've made a decision that Beckett was going to be your avenue. Yeah. How did that take okay. place? Okay, well, I was convinced after because I thought I was getting on pretty well with Beckett. I'd been respectful and we left as friends. There was no issue there and I thought... Um, he'd softened a bit towards me. There was no us and them type feeling. I think people from the outside would say it must be quite a skill. You're there with this guy who's done this vile thing Mm. and yet you have to create this rapport with him which looks like friendliness. Yeah. How do you approach that conundrum? Well, you talk on the level very respectfully to them so they don't feel talked down to. You also offer them cigarettes, food, coffee, the whole, you know, arrangement while you're chatting. Um, you treat them as human, as, as I would like to be treated if I was in his shoes and I was innocent, you know. So my main strategy with Beckett was to make him aware that I had overwhelming evidence that he was going to be charged that day with at least kidnapping. And secondly, that he knows that Camilleri will give him up in terms of when two people commit a crime, two people don't keep the secrets very well. And I gave him a very clear opportunity. I said, we are speaking to you first. If you want to take that opportunity, it is a matter for you. And when we first walked into the room, I'd blown up A4-sized pictures of the two girls. And when he walked in, they were face up in front of him. And he quickly just slammed them down on the desk. So I knew I'd hit a raw nerve. So there was a bit of uh, emotion about him. He knew He'd done the wrong thing and he couldn't face looking at those very direct faces. Because at this point you didn't know who'd actually done the no, killings. No. You knew there was this relationship between them. Yeah. And I guess as you would discover, the knowledge for Beckett that his partner in crime was about to give him up yeah. was monumental yeah. given what 
Camilleri had got him to do. But also I knew that uh, they'd been apart for this period of time. He was off drugs, he was clean, his brain would be operating a little better, a little sharper, and maybe this was our only opportunity. So I put all those things to him and the weird thing was we had the interview all set up with tape recorders, but the rest of the team were outside and until we pressed that button, they couldn't actually hear the conversations. You know, they're all stressing out, wondering how it's going. I was saying to him, this is the evidence we've got. I can put you there this time, this time, and we're going to speak to Camilleri today and one of you is going to talk. So I said, mate, why don't you go have a cigarette and think about it? But the key moment was the show and tell. Yes, yes. The pictures got him and I'm quite confident it was thinking about Camilleri giving up because in hindsight, because he knows what Camilleri is going to say, I had nothing to do with the murders. I was in the car, you know, a kilometre away. So I'm assuming in hindsight that's going through his mind. I'm in deep trouble here. So, yeah, we said to him, you have a cigarette, go outside. So he had these two guards with him who took him out and uh, from the room we were in there was a little window up high and I could actually see him in a courtyard pacing up and down with a cigarette and he went up to one of the guards and he was clearly looked a bit teary from where I was sitting. So they quickly stubbed the cigarette and they came back at full pace towards the room. Yeah. And at that stage, the other guys that were outside trying to listen rushed in and said, what's going on, what's going on? I said, I really don't know, but I think we're very close. So they quickly left. He comes storming back in and uh, he said, give me a map, give me a map. So I've got out this great big map. So I'll show you where they are. So we start sort of going down the Manara Highway and he said, oh, I think they're here. And he was sort of quite near Bombala. An hour 20 southwest of Bega. So I said, uh, what happened to them? Oh, they're dead. I said, who killed them? I killed them both. That was a real shock. I didn't, you know, typically you'd think, oh, they killed one each, obviously two different blokes doing rapes. But no, he, he admitted straight away did them both. So I quickly sat him down, got the tapes running, and the procedure then is you, you get him to acknowledge that conversation's just taken place and then you let him run so the story. So the, the tape recorder wasn't rolling at this point? No, no. At the time he admitted both murders, it wasn't running. So you must have been going, oh. And the outside people don't know. Then we turned it on, they could hear everything. So he then starts talking about how it all unfolded. So they see the two girls, they pull up here. To get them in the car, the pink television has to come out because it's so big it's filling probably two-thirds of the seat and the only other thing on the seat's a slab of beer. So they get the two girls into the car. The car was such that the handles were sheared off so that once you're in the back seat, there's no getting away. And this was how Camilleri had set this car up? Yeah, yeah. That's how that other basically girl... Basically a mobile rape yeah. vehicle. Well, you were detained, nothing you could do. So they would pull the knives out in the front and that's how that other girl um, experienced her sexual assaults. You know, they had a knife in the front, they were threatening to kill her, and she just had to go along with whatever request they made. Beckett claimed that Nicole and Lauren accepted an invitation to go for drinks with the men in Tarthra. This is dubious, but did not change the route. Beckett says they continued to Tarthra, had the drinks, and then turned around, and then have driven into the uh, start of the track to take them back to the campsite. And they hit sort of a... Uh, a bump to stop people travelling fast. His car scrapes, Camilleri, you know, swears and carries on and the knives come out. So then they turn around and come back this way and that's when the assaults start. 
This is where Lauren's top was found by the roadway. She'd managed to leave a clue as to the direction they were being taken. So they've gone through Marimbula, gone towards Eden, and before you come to Eden, there's a sign for the uh, uh, National Park on your left. So dirt road, they turn left, go in there, next sexual assault happens, and they change girls. Then they get them back in the car, go back through Eden, and south of Eden, just over the Victorian border, again, they stop and sexually assault and swap again. And Beckett describes all that in great detail. And then after that, the two of them are talking in the front. They're not aware where they are. And they're talking in the front of the car about throwing them off one of the bridges on the uh, highway to Canberra. There's those really high overpasses as the way to get rid of them and that they can't go back because they know they're going to be identified one shape or another. And then Camilleri sees a sign and realises he's actually in Victoria and he carries on swears and curses. And it's Can River, not Orbos, that they come to. Yep. They see the right turn to Canberra and so they turn right there and then the next road, dirt road on your left, is Fiddler's Green Creek. So they cross that the little bridge, turn left, go in 500 metres or so, and uh, tell the girls they're going to tie them up and leave them in the bush and then someone will find them. So the girls are tied up behind their backs and walk down through the forest to a creek. One would assume with the belief that we're just going to be tied up so they probably didn't struggle to that point. Anyway, when they get down to the creek, uh, Camilleri uh, tells Beckett, kill this one here and they tied Nicole to a tree just up an embankment and tied Lauren on the ground near the creek. And at that point, they hop-tied them, so feet into the hands behind her back. So she's face down on the edge of a creek, and Nicole's tied around a tree about 10 metres away. And then Camilleri tells Beckett, kill her first and then kill her. And then mm. he leaves, allegedly, back to the car. So Camilleri had instructed him to take all the ropes off, so he goes back, cuts all the ropes off, and took them back to the car, tells Camilleri he'd done the deed. Beckett was saying that on the way back to Canberra they burnt the ropes at a lookout as you come into Canberra and that they threw the knives into uh, Burley Griffin, the lake, from the bridge. So I think the interview went for, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours. The guys outside have already got divers on route to Burley Griffin, <laughs> a search team going to this lookout to find this, and there was, it was a big burnt spot where they, you know, burnt the ropes. How different was the Beckett you were seeing now to the one you'd previously interviewed with his feet on the chair yeah, and yeah. casual as you like. How different was it? Yeah, very teary and remorseful at times. He was, yeah, a very different person, yeah. Did you ask him the obvious question, how do you feel about life now? No, I don't ask <laughs> the emotional <laughs> stuff. Stick to the... That's the one I'd be asking. Evidence and facts, that's all I want. Yeah. Um, but you must have been registering, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a father of daughters. Yeah. You know, you... Uh, you're seeing this person. I mean, uh, you'd be curious to know their emotional makeup, yeah. their psychological makeup. Yeah, well, that actually reminds me. There's one thing I said to him before with the tapes are off. You're a father of four children. I said, these parents simply want to know where they are. They can bury them, give them some closure. Didn't He didn't say or do anything, but... You are piling the pressure on him. Yeah, yeah. So that was, I'm sure, another thing in the bucket that tipped him in our favour, yeah. And so hour and a half passes, what's the next step? Oh, well, it's complicated because we're in the ACT. I don't have a, a warrant card in that state. So we had to apply to the minister to give us a permit to take him interstate, um, into New South Wales, we believed. So 
there was some argy-bargy about that. The bosses sorted it out and we got one till midnight, something like that. There was a set time that we had to have him back in custody in the ACT. So gave him some food, got him in the car, sat him in the middle between us and we started off down the Manara Highway. So he showed us the bridge, the divers were already in there, showed us where the ropes were, got photographs of that and then we continued on down the Manara Highway and uh, we got to Bombala and he's, uh, he started to say, I don't remember this bit of road but I think it's further this way. So we kept going and then we've hit the Victorian border. Well, fortunately I've got a Victorian warrant card so that didn't matter. But um, I sort of heart sunk because, oh, we're going to lose this. He's, you know, we're in another state altogether. So he keeps going on this road. He said, I don't, and it became dirt. There were roadworks. I said, you don't remember this? You sure it's not back here? So no, no. Anyway, so he keeps going and then he sees the bridge, uh, Fiddler's Green Creek. This is it. This is it. I said, okay. So we turn up this road. We went up on a half a kilometre or so. He said, oh, turn around. It's about here. So we've turned around, parked. And then it's a group of, I think, five or six of us um, have then tromped down through the bush and it's quite a steep sort of down to this creek. And we've gone one direction and the other direction and nothing. And, like, I'm in a really good suit and good leather shoes and we're walking in water, you know. Um, so we've gone back to the car and I've done a, I think I did a short video clip there. And I said, listen, you know, we haven't found a blah, blah, blah. I said, I have to get you back by this time. We've got to go. And he, in fact, no, we're going to stay and we're going to find them. I thought, you know, that was the humanity of him sort of coming forward. He wanted to find and get it sorted. So we had a quick discussion amongst ourselves, you know, let's take the risk, let's just do it. So we went again, we moved further down, closer to the bridge, I believe, and went again. And as soon as we sort of descended, um, I could hear the smell of the, uh, you know, rotting flesh and I knew we were close. And he'd already described this tree that it's sort of fallen across the creek with a big tree root and that Lauren had been drowned and killed there. So we saw the tree and he just pointed, that's it. And you could, Lauren was still intact in the water. Only her, I think it was her heels were out of the water and they were bone, but the rest of the body was still there. Um, I think he dropped to his knees there. He was quite sort of emotional at that point. Then he tried to show us where Nicole was. Well, he showed us the tree, but she wasn't there. She was actually in pieces metres away, uh, probably from wild pigs, wild dogs, who knows. But eventually they gathered her there. We found part of the skull, so we knew, you know, it was her. Do you think it was likely that someone would have found those bodies had someone not led you there? Absolutely not, no. We would never have resolved this without Beckett. And you have to give him some credit for that and a lot of credit for the court case against Camilleri. You know, without Beckett on board, it would not have happened. You know, he, he would have stood alone for the murders. He took us to the scenes and then uh, we went back to the car, did a shut-off interview and he got taken back, at which stage uh, we had to call the Victorian homicide team in and a guy came up from Bansdale to guard the scene for us and we met the uh, Victorian homicide team the next morning. So that's when they took over and I, I remember discussing with Russell Sheather, the detective that was sort of doing most of the inquiry, as to the fact that, Beckwood couldn't recognise the road, you know, until the Fiddler's Green Creek. And he said straight away, Mark, murdering people is hard work. He falls asleep afterwards. Oh, didn't think of that. And that's what happened. Straight afterwards, I guess the in the moment, he's just fallen asleep and woke up, you know, 20 minutes down the road. So just sort of bizarre, sort of, but, yeah. Now you have some information 
to tell the parents? How was that handled? So uh, Victorian detectives had to take him back to a court because to extradite someone you have to have everything cleared and finalised. So I think they went to Canberra to resolve things with him but it was resolved within hours the next day and he was on his way to Melbourne and they were charging him that evening. So I'm aware that uh, he went with the Victorian detectives, they redrove the route to every crime scene uh, and filmed a lot of those things and then took him back and charged him and prepared a short fact sheet for the court, you know, for a bail court the next morning. So we knew that fact sheet would be in the media that morning, basically. And we knew there were details in there that the family had no awareness of. The moment that Beckett had uh, made his admissions, um, the guys outside that were listening had rung the inspector who had driven around to see the parents and said, listen, sorry, they've been raped and murdered. We'll tell you more as we know more. So they were already quite a mess. Anyway, we got both lots of parents and any children that wanted to come in that next morning and we drew the map on the whiteboard and went through each scene and said, this is what happened here. And I just said it factually. I said, I know it's going to be very upsetting, but this is what happened. You need to know because it'll be in the press today. So they asked lots of questions. They were teary, but they just wanted to know the detail. And um, when they had finished their examinations of the bodies, so the homicide team took over the crime scene. They had a team of forensic people there. They gathered all the bones and clothing, took them back to Melbourne and they stripped the bones clean and mounted them on boards and then brought them to Bega for anyone that wanted to view them. And both fathers wanted to sit with them for quite a while. So I think that must have given them, you know, that degree of further closure. Both fathers said that they recognised the teeth, the smile. It was definitely their daughter, you know. I guess it helps you, yes, they are dead. They are really what the police have told us has happened, you know. Um, yeah. What happened next? Okay. I think I told you earlier about after they were first abducted and raped at Kalaroo in that little town that we believe Lauren threw this jumper out of the window. We believe now as a sign they'd gone along that route and were going south. So we'd taken possession of that back from uh, her family and it had been sent to a lab in Sydney for examination. Well, it came back from there, nothing found. So it was you know, sealed and wrapped and it was just kept with all the other bits of evidence. Well, then the Victorians took that back to Melbourne with them and a week or so later they rang me to say, you're not going to believe this, but we found a small fragment of Camilleri semen on that jacket. You know, so The Victorian forensic teams are pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they went over the car and found more things in the car. Even though they'd steam cleaned the car in Campbelltown, they could clearly show uh, the girl's DNA in the car. You know, all that was quite inescapable. The other thing the Victorians did that highly impressed me, within two or three days they found the girl in Canberra and had a full and detailed statement and convinced her to give evidence. You know, she was a star witness. So the other thing that was, you know, really skilled and professional of Russell Sheether was that he maintained a uh, rapport with Beckett such that he gave his story when it was required and gave it clearly and well. Because you must have briefed Russell on how to deal with Beckett because yeah, you yeah, yeah. already established that rapport with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. You know, they knew he was going to be the weak link all along and as soon as they looked at my interview 
and convinced him to do the uh, the drive through of all the different scenes. They just built that relationship through that day and, I mean, Russell was the only one that visited him in jail. You know, week after week he'd visit him and keep the relationship going. Because he was key now because if somehow Camilleri was able to influence him somehow indirectly yeah. whatever, he could have yeah, changed, recanted everything. Yeah, game over, really, you know. Well, we would have kidnap abduction, that's all we'd have. And, in fact, his trial for me was so... It was unclear to me if we really would win it because Beckett's a co-offender and, yes, you've got this girl from Canberra but she could be weak, she may be good, we may lose, you know, because he didn't physically kill them. So I had warrants in my hand (laughs) because we thought if they come back not guilty, he's going to walk from the court and his mother and family were sitting up the back saying, yeah, we've got champagne, right, not right, all this sort of stuff while we're waiting for the jury. I said, no, he's not. <laughs> so I was ready to arrest him as soon as a bad verdict came through, but it came back. But it was several days. It wasn't quick. And, like, I was thought it would take an hour. Because the longer the, the jury are out, the more doubt there is. Yeah, yeah. The, like, I thought, what are they arguing about? You know, like, anyway, it came back right, so... Yeah. yeah. At a certain point, you had to respect the jurisdiction of the Vicks. Yes. Because the murder had taken place in Victoria. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, handing over, in one sense it was a personal loss. In another sense it was a huge relief because they were such a competent team in the sense that there was no stone unturned. They turned up more than we had. They pursued it to the nth degree. They threw everything at it. You know, I... Um, I know how hard it is to get resources and things done. When they took over, everything was done that was considered, you know, possible. It was remarkable. So I'm not sure what happened in the sexual abuse of the stepdaughter, but you couldn't get him out of the state till he'd finished all his various penalties. So he was sitting tight. He knew I'm in trouble. So he played it to the nth degree to go. But they, it took six or eight weeks to get him, then they got him. So um, what do you do after a case like that? You get a, you get a guilty verdict. Yeah. They've got the maximum, the sentence comes later, obviously, but, you know, how do you, how do you debrief, how do you process yeah, yeah. after that so, sort of a moment? Um, the day that we'd resolved it and the Vicks had taken over, our team, the Burger team, decided to have drinks at the, a local hotel and we invited the two parents in just to sort of sit with us and have a beer. So they came in, but the very moment they walked in, the TV was playing a diver coming up from the water holding the knife and they just left. You know, it was just one of those moments you couldn't predict but you just think, oh, that must hurt just to see that. Beckett was sentenced to life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 35 years. He'll be eligible for parole in 2033. After exhausting all his appeals right to the High Court, Camilleri was sentenced to life imprisonment, never to be released. He later admitted to the 1992 murder of Melbourne teenager Prue Bird. Now, you've stayed in Bega. You've made, yeah, your, made yeah. your home here. Yeah. And the families are still in the area. Yeah. How the much... kids have moved away. But they're, right. They're north, but yeah. 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 So you still bump into them from time to time? Yes. Yeah, so Lauren's parents I know really well and see them several times a year in the town. We don't get together socially. Uh, Nicole's father's a vet. I see him quite often at the vet clinic. Nicole's mother moved away, but I've, <laughs> I met her in Wollongong. I was at a school with my daughter teachers at a, like a fete, and a lady came up behind me and gave me this massive hug. 
turned around. It's Mrs. Collins. <laughs> I hadn't seen her for years, you know. So, yeah, I've seen her once. That's it. I don't think people from the outside can understand what that bond is like when yeah. you work with a family and yeah. and it's terrible if you don't get a result, but when you do get a result, what's, can you put that into words, the bond you feel? There's a sense of closeness. We know their darkest secret almost, you know, like, um, you know, they feel like sort of emotionally crashing these guys aren't crashing, so maybe we we don't need to either, you know. But I guess in a sense, uh, at another level, you learn not to give that side away when you're with those people, you know. If you are upset about something, which I don't tend to get because I, I just get myself in that mindset that I'm not going to be upset by this scene or this body or, you know, this family. And I guess unless it's your own family, that's always worked for me. Uh, yeah. yeah. Detectives, including you, talk about the cumulative effect of these yeah. things. It's not one. Yes. It's that bucket. Yeah. Drip, drip, drip over a period of time. How full was the bucket? It was pretty full then, yeah. So after this uh, task force, I think I, my doctor wanted me to have three months off, which I did before Camilleri. What was happening? With oh, you? I was just so fatigued. So I had this sore throat, which was some sort of viral thing, but I was left with like a post-viral fatigue and I just couldn't focus and couldn't do anything well. So I knew I was in a bit of trouble. So my GP said, Mark, just take time off. It just doesn't matter. You know, if you're not careful, you get these chronic fatigue type things and you just don't want that. So I took some time off, came back and then uh, continued working. What was that? So 97, 98. And then in the years following that, I would find when I would take annual leave or weekends, the first few days I was just washed up, couldn't think straight, couldn't do anything because I'd been in that sort of hypervigilant state. And um, I was talking to my GP and she was saying, really, it's time to finish. You know, this will not get better if you don't deal with it. And I'd always thought I didn't have any sort of post-trauma stress because I didn't have the the reliving sort of nightmares that are typical of that thing. But she said, no, it is the cumulative effect. That's why you feel this fatigue and sort of mood disorder from time to time. So uh, I accepted that and, yeah, got some help. So, yeah. <clears throat> Was it resolved, do you think? Or I don't think it's ever going to be resolved, no. Um, the One of the psychs they sent me to said, your body keeps the score. It's a natural reaction to what you've observed over many years and... Um, it's unlikely to pass, but you learn to manage it. You you accept that it's there and it's not such an issue. It's just how my life is. Uh, I think for most people, just that single scene of finding the girls there and the smell of the putrefying bodies yeah. would be enough. Yeah. But you probably have a dozen of those. Oh, more than that. <laughs> yeah, lots of them. Um, and it's not just them that are, you know... Uh, it's just, uh, I guess, a constant exposure to tragedy or the tragedies that happen in human life uh, and you see the full spectrum and um, you just have to let it wash past, you know, without sort of getting stuck in it. Um, if you don't, you know you're in trouble. So um, I guess that's what I learnt to do. But at the end of the day, it did do some harm, you know, which I have to accept, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. I guess it's a ledger, isn't it? Entries yes. on both sides. Yes. You yeah. try to balance it up. When you look at what you've achieved, yeah. including this case, yeah. would you do it all again? Yes. Yeah. You know, I've got no regrets about the job or the things I did. The point I started investigative work, 
I was sort of at a point in policing where I was a bit tired of it and I thought maybe there's something else I should look at. But I was so fascinated by it and the fact that I became good at it, yeah, it just kept me going. And even at times when I was sort of tired or low, something new would come in that I, to follow up and it would just get my curiosity going and away I'd go. So it's that sort of um, employment. So, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and it, it's been good to me in many respects. Um, but you're still a young bloke, Mark. Um, <laughs> how, do you, how do you replace that thrill, that sense of satisfaction, that moment when Beckett breaks or you yeah, get yeah, guilty? That, I mean, that's missing, except, I mean, every now and then I have coffee with other guys, uh, even the guy that sort of got my job after me, uh, and we talk about things that he's got. And I say, if you covered this, this, and this, oh no, you know. And so we have that sort of interaction, but I don't, yeah, I don't, no. So I, I, I don't think I've replaced it, uh, but I do, in some sense, miss it. But I don't miss the the fatigue that I, you know, it ended up giving me. So, um, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on Australian Detectives Real Crime, and you're welcome. Let us uh, thank you for your service. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening. Executive Producer Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolich. Associate Producer Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital Producer Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.